Buongiorno! You're listening to another episode of Big Shiny Takes, Canada's number one uh, Italian podcast. I am one of your hosts, Jeremia Appella. <laughs> oh, God. And we're a proud member of the Harbinger Media Network, where you can check out other great podcasts such as Kino Lefter and Alberta Advantage. Uh, joining me, as usual, are Marino Greco. D- Jeremy, it's very presumptuous that you assume that our listeners are listening to this in the morning. They could be listening to this in the evening, the afternoon. D- did I say good morning? <laughs> you said buongiorno. <laughs> I just thought that, hey, how do you say that in Italian? Uh, I don't know. I guess ciao would be like neutral. or like... You know, growing up, my parents like only non-jewish friends or at least only like close non-jewish friends that i knew uh were italian so you know and they've said i'm an honorary italian so we we love to do that who are you who are you to uh say otherwise uh i'm also here with a guy who's not italian uh unlike myself and marino and our guest today uh eric wickham hello jeremy i think i speak for everyone um when i say Mamma Mia. That's right. Was that cultural appropriation when ABBA did Mamma Mia? Because they're Swedish? Yes. That's what I thought. Because um, I, you know, I stand with the Italian-Canadian community. Yes. And I, you know, I want to make sure that, um, you know, their rich culture isn't being appropriated by a bunch of Swedes. Um, anyways, um, our guest today... Friend of mine here in Calgary, he is affiliated with a little podcast called the Alberta Advantage. Um, he runs their Twitch channel or helps run their Twitch channel. Anyways, he's on Twitch a lot. Um, same nights as we are. We did it first. <laughs> um, Aaron Giovanone. That's pretty good. Hey, boys. That's pretty good. That's pretty good. No, I've accepted that. I've accepted all kinds of... Yeah, in my life, I've accepted many pronunciations and mispronunciations of my name. But Giovanone is how I would say it. Giovanone. Actually, when I went to Italy as a young man, was learning the language myself. People there, like, taught me how to pronounce my last name. (laughs) They they, they would hear me say it. They'd go, no, no, no. It's Jova... (laughs) It's Giovanone, and in fact, there's a double there's a double N that you have to emphasize, and uh, None. yeah, and that's something that we English speakers have a hard time with. But uh, yeah, thank you for your pronunciation of my name. I think it was pretty good, and thanks for ha- cool. thank you for having me. Very excited to be here today. Yeah, we're excited to have you. Uh, in addition to being like a a Twitch streamer, uh, you're also a professor. <laughs> yeah. Can I say that? Yeah. Can, am I going to get you in trouble at work? No, just uh, I tend not to mention any of the places I work. Just not for any particular reason, just because uh, I just feels like uh, I work at many different places. So I don't mention any particular one. But yeah, I'm, mm. an adju- I'm an adjunct English professor. I write articles about these days about uh, Canadian culture from a kind of a class perspective. Uh, I've written a couple of books of poetry, which is doesn't ever really come into into uh, podcasting very often. But maybe one day I'll be reading po- poems online. Uh, that would be 
be fine. You should you should start a Twitch channel. Like Marino, we have our Twitch channel, and Marino has his for gaming. You should start your own for poetry, or maybe that's more of a that's probably more of a TikTok thing, actually. Yeah, you should uh, you should or yeah, Instagram get on poetry. Talk. There's Instagram poetry. Famously, Rupi Kaur is uh, yeah. Oh God, yeah. They okay. made her fortune on Instagram. Yeah. yeah, we're huge fans of Rupi here on the podcast. <laughs> this is a Rupi cast. We yeah. think she, she's so good. She's at really writing. good at showing and not telling. <laughs> oh wait what yeah yeah i think that's fair <laughs> i actually i also i have an english undergrad and i yeah. actually specialized in contemporary poetry in my undergrad oh is that but, right yeah, yeah? It's, it's very very funny the coincidences but uh yeah i died that's that was a long time ago too i do still love poetry yeah yeah me too me too i just find when i write articles about the trailer park boys more people tend to read those yes yeah. <laughs> so, so i've kind of yeah i don't know <laughs> turned to that yeah i was those articles probably do really well eh because it connects with like an audience is like a, a more popular audience than perhaps other pieces in like jacobin or elsewhere. yeah i mean i've written about poetry for like the walrus or literary review of canada I'm very very proud of all, all that stuff but it's like I don't have a sense that it's circulating that that widely, you know, and uh, yeah, because it's pretty niche. Yeah, it's a niche thing. But hey, I mean, we what what is what did Mao say? Let a thousand flowers bloom. Maybe it was more than a thousand. Hundred. No, it was a hundred flowers. Bloom. <laughs> okay. No, he want too many flowers. To bloom. <laughs> exactly. That's We're true. Put all these flowers. Yeah, oversupply of flowers. <laughs> it's going to drive the price yeah. down. The Dutch found that out. I think at some point. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah well anyways uh we've brought you on here for our i mean as, as we said before this is our like italian uh extravaganza <laughs> um, i think that may be an italian word even well wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah probably um i didn't thought about that i i got i, I had a gabagool sandwich uh oh. this morning Uh-oh. okay we're i think we've been <laughs> yeah. i think we've been encouraging him, him a little too much uh la- laughing at some of <laughs> <laughs> okay the whole gabagool thing what an invention of even like just like the past five or ten years even when the sopranos Isn't it just was capicola yeah it's just capicola and that's like all that's how i was raised and this is definitely regional maybe there are people yeah. in new jersey who like say like there are people in the u.s who call like red sauce gravy and stuff like that they're, they're doing all sorts of inventive stuff now. i don't know this this is taking on a life of its own thanks to twitter and and uh obsession with sopranos and the munification of sopranos Mm. Mm-hmm. yeah i mean gabagool not a phrase i ever encountered mm-hmm. <laughs> before watching the sopranos probably a new jersey italian dialect thing right mm-hmm. but we're going to talk about today probably the preeminent italian canadian newspaper columnist uh would you would you agree with that as an italian that's my perception but i want to hear what other italian voices i'd say because i like to uh lift them up i I can't name off the top of my head another italian canadian that i'm you know that i know is italian do you know any others oh oh that that dumb fuck at uh now uh enzo uh what's his last name we we read him on stream like I don't know a month ago. I've read columns um, from him that were not as egregious as that one column, eh? Like, like the columnist we're talking about today. Yeah, yeah. Demano, you know, occasionally strikes gold, and then sometimes she dresses up and does guerrilla journalism in an encampment and, and paints everybody as dangerous yeah, criminals. Well, well, um, I think what I mean we've talked about Rosie on the show before, but it was a while ago. 
and we're sort of going to do maybe a deep dive into her her psyche uh, in this particular episode. But for those who don't remember uh, who Rosie DeMano is, uh, for listeners in Western Canada, for example, um, she's a Toronto Star columnist who wrote a lead that Gawker they uh, named this lead from 2013 uh, Rosie DeMano column about the trial of a doctor who uh, sexually assaulted a patient while she was undergoing a hysterectomy. And that lead is um, she lost a womb, but gained a penis. Provocative. Provocative. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. And so uh, that's who Rosie is. She does love like she's trying I would liken her to the Toronto stars, Christy Blatchford. She's like that equivalent, you know. I think they were friends. That would make you know, sense. They they were both like contrarian, uh, you know, right of center. Well, in Christy Blatchard's case, like right of like right of far right, right of like Maxine Barrier. But um, in Rosie's case, I mean, she sort Rosie's, of Rosie. I don't get like an explicitly conservative vibe from Rosie. I get more. She's of a, a Toronto Star conservative. Yeah, Toronto yeah. Star conservative yeah. slash like like maybe like a centrist with street sense kind of, you know, <laughs> that, well, that kind of, I, like, I, I mean, like isn't that, that a trial star conservative? Yeah, basically <laughs> that's same thing. Yeah. I mean, she's, I mean, she's a lib. I mean, like, she's a liberal. She's a, probably a kind of a right wing liberal. Probably. I would say. Yeah. That that's probably true. Like a Paul Martin liberal. Yeah. I mean, cause Italian Canadians do like, generally vote liberal from my understanding they do that's my understanding too i I think it has to do i mean it it may depend on as as all things political do like what your job is how you make money in life i think a lot of small business people who happen to be italian uh they would probably be more conservative because of the you know the cut taxes rhetoric usually uh at least i mean at least for that um and, and for other reasons too maybe but I think there is a tradition in the Italian community. Uh, if you were an immigrant at the time when mass immigration happened, which was after World War II, um, that was when a lot of my family came over. We have roots in Canada. The Italian, the Italian family has roots in Canada even before that. But the bulk of my family came over after World War II. And that was due to like liberal immigration policy, right? And for that period, uh, much of that period, it was liberal governments. So I think there was a connection with some of that original uh, generation who immigrated with the Liberal Party for that reason. Very similar story in my family. Dad migrated uh, just after the war with his family. My mom was maybe like her mom, a bit older. Uh, But uh, my dad sort of like sets the tone for politics in the house, Uh, that kind of old fashioned story. And then like he just has like warm memories of Pierre Elliott Trudeau's government. And sometimes he'll go like, oh, well, like be a little interested in the NDP or even the conservatives if there's like a worker focus. Like that's his big thing. But like if I could like get the mean, the average of his politics, it's like CNN liberal, CBC liberal. Well, Jeremy, what about your Italian family? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, no, that's an interesting question. My, My honorary Italian family uh well so my mom's from the states so that's like different um but uh i know my dad's side of the family is 
mostly conservative. I actually did recently discover a cousin of mine who's a reader of Jacobin. Um, so that that was sort of a surprise to see on my dad's side. But like like my grand like his parents were uh, conservative. I think it was because of the liberals' immigration policies during the war of like not letting Jews in. Mm. I mean, most Canadian Jews are more progressive than conservative. Uh, like Harper in 2011 was the first time the conservatives ever like won a majority of the Jewish vote. And that's, I think, because of liberal immigration policies like after the war. They they always came off as more ethnically open or uh, more multicultural. I think we're going to see in, in some in this piece we read by Rosie uh, Dimano because it's two ends that yeah like there is a preoccupation with uh, uh, cultural identity that liberals were al- were always like historically more open open to um, and courted that, that vote the ethnic vote. So what we're going to do. I guess was it like an essay she wrote in the collection, Aaron? Like- yeah, my under this is a this is called "Growing Up on Grace," which is a reference to the, her street in. Uh, I actually don't know exactly. I guess it's in a little Italy. Uh, there's many little Italy's in Toronto, I think. But um, it was an Italian neighborhood she grew up in, and this is a personal essay about her childhood, her uh, you know problems coming to a sense of self. Uh, well, I mean, we'll go through it. We'll see all the different themes that emerge here. But uh, it was published in, I believe, ni- 1996 in a collection of nonfiction by uh, Canadian writers. Yeah. So Grace Street is like right in the middle of Little Italy in Toronto. It's probably like, what, 15 minutes west of me right now. And it is it's still called Little Italy, but it, it's I would say it's decidedly less Italian than it used to be when Rosie was around, I think. Personally, I think of like St. Clair, west of Young. Uh, that is my historic Little Italy, more of a North York Little Italy inspired yeah, by my yeah, parents. Yeah, yeah. I'd say there's at least three Little Italys that I know of in uh, in Toronto. But this is the like the first, the downtown right. Little Italy that Demano is from. So uh, I, it's quite a nice piece. I mean, uh, well, I'm I'm happy to read this one. I've highlighted some spots that. Oh, okay, perfect. That- we were because we were like, wow, this is long. How are we going to do this? <laughs> Well, um, I'll, of course, I'll practice we, my poetry reciting uh, vocal chords. <laughs> They've been trained <laughs> trained by years of sestinas and uh, quatrains, etc. Can Can you read it as slam poetry? <laughs> you don't have to do that. Please don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> I can see it now. Oh God! Just Anyways, putting them on the spot is unfair. <laughs> It'll sound like William Shatner, probably. Um, so, okay, I'll just jump into it then. How about that? Perfect. All right. So growing up on Grace, Rosie DiManno. I was about six years old when I discovered that I was a Canadian. This came as a rude shock. Insofar as I had a vague image of a huge world with a bunch of different countries in it, I thought I was an American. So I just want to point out here, like how key the nationalist frame is for her identity talk, her identity worries here. Uh, what is a Canadian? What does it mean to be a Canadian? This is like, to me, you know, kind of like a classic 90s, um, 90s liberal Canadian vibe, very much, very mm. much like promoting Canadianness. But, and it's not just corny, like a lot of people like really, you know, believed in it. 
Mm-hmm. You know, everyone's talking about CanCon as it relates to Canadian media, but what about the CanCon of the soul? It's <laughs> <laughs> a really good point. <laughs> My parents are Italian immigrants, and I was born in Toronto, grew up on Grace Street downtown, but didn't learn English until I started school. In my household, wherever the adults spoke of leaving their old country for this new one, it was always put in these terms. We came to America. They made no distinction between the United States and Canada, or maybe I just didn't grasp it. America. Sometimes it was said with regret and sadness, other times in terms of a bold adventure, but never with a sense of belonging. It was always this alien place in which they found themselves and to which they were great grateful for whatever comforts they had acquired. But their suspicions and their sense of isolation lingered. It's why they, and every other ethnic group that ventures to the city, clustered in self-contained unilingual neighborhoods, both to shun and to defend themselves from shunning. They weren't cultural ghettos. They were outposts of the familiar, like pioneer forts in a hostile land, the land of the Inglese. Hmm. Is this why is this why immigrants go to the same neighborhood? <laughs> it's, it's the hostel in Glaze. Um, it was so much easier to find a job and find a place to stay and have a network already set up for you. Just, you know, going through, you know, people that you actually know who, you know, tend to be from the same country as you because that's where you used to live. Right? Like is, is is this not like very common all the time? Like it just the way that people sort of migrate. Uh, yeah, and it's I mean it's not just for cultural reasons, right? I mean there are you know economic material reasons why you go someplace where you have connections, where you can talk mm-hmm. to people, and where you might be able to get a job. Also, immigrant neighborhoods. Guess what? They're cheaper. <laughs> That's why people go there. So this is a theme we're going to touch on a lot, I think, as we read this is this insistence on not seeing class or economics anywhere. She, you're going to see this over and over again. What she sees is a culture, what this is, is a cultural ghetto. This is a place where people are choosing like just to like live a certain lifestyle as if it didn't matter what they did for a living, how they make money, how much it costs to live there or anything else. It's like, um, it's like the, the sun, she's like wearing the sunglasses from they live except it's the opposite lens in it so it's like it removes all like images of class like any obvious like um any place where class would break through it's like she just her eyes will just not absorb (laughs) they actually hand out pairs of those glasses every liberal party convention (laughs) (laughs) it's such a it's such a like good point that like demano just has zero understanding of class in her interpretation of Canadianness. Right, like it doesn't even it doesn't even occur to her. No. No, it's wild. I feel like that's going to make this piece so much more fun to read and can and confusing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like why are all these people here? <laughs> oh, cuz of the Anglaise. The Anglaise. <laughs> it's it's the land of the Anglaise. So okay, uh, I'll continue here. It was the early 1960s. I watched American TV beamed from Buffalo. I did too. Uh, Captain Kangaroo and Commander Tom. Unfamiliar with those shows. Oh yeah, because you're from St. Catharines. <laughs> yes, we got all the good stuff from Which Buffalo. is like a suburb of Buffalo. <laughs> Come. <laughs> Now, now it's a suburb of Toronto, basically. Um, yeah. <laughs> sitcoms like Petticoat Junction, man, these references and the hun- 
The Honeymooners. That's, uh, I guess, potentially a funny one. Um, which had no similarities to our own existence on Gray Street, but which I misunderstood as that larger American reality from which I was excluded only because of my parentage, not by geographic boundaries, and certainly not because these were phony, idealized domestic situations that only existed within a television tube. This, I thought, flipping between Leave it to Beaver and I Love Lucy is how people really live, except on my street, the privileged people, not the interlopers like us, the imposters like us, the ones who have propriety, first dibs on the country. Hmm. Is that that? Uh, is that that? <laughs> the, one... the first, first dibs? <laughs> I don't know, Rosie. <laughs> <laughs> well, what is a dib anyway? <laughs> oh, God. I, I think that's actually something that comes up several times. Like, her just base ignoring of First Nations people throughout this entire piece. It's just like, oh, the English and the Italians. <laughs> you know, the two the two founding nations of uh, Canada. <laughs> Canada. <laughs> uh, these people are described, she continues, the ones who drink milk at the dinner table, who have cereal for breakfast, who make sandwiches from pre-sliced white bread, who wear high heels in the house. So all of these cultural, you know, culinary markers of identity uh, there is like, uh, here's the closest we get anywhere to the sense Like she uses the word privileged, right? She uses proprietary. So this is the closest we get to any kind of class discourse, the sense that, hey, these are people who have more money. <laughs> that's yeah. why that's why they do this. That's why they have access to these consumer goods. Maybe you don't have access to. Um, but the um, that we, we never really get further than what we just heard. It is like it's kind of a sad, you know. It's maybe sad's the wrong word, but it's disappointing because I feel like there's there's a chance for this to go somewhere interesting uh, where, you know, she's talking about how, oh, this is how the English behave and like they act like they belong. And then like if if she took it a step further and went, but they don't, they took this land from somebody. I feel like that would be a, a very interesting piece about belonging. And I, I'm kind of disappointed that it's just like abrupt stop. but. I might be expecting too much from Rosie. Well, you don't want to disrespect Christopher Columbus. <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so like who like whatever who came before him, that's not the point. I saw that Sopranos episode. <laughs> it's a good it's well, it's one of the worst episodes probably <laughs> of the Sopranos. <laughs> but uh I'm glad I like doing AJ Reed's Howard Zinn. That is that's actually good. That's a very good part of it. Yeah. I uh I'm glad they made that episode. Somebody needed to. I'm going to, I'll just going to jump ahead a little bit here. Uh, it, it dawned on me somewhere around grade one that I was not American, not at all. Although this growing, <laughs> this is not a bright kid. <laughs> <laughs> oh, this growing suspicion was something I kept to myself for a while. It's not the kind of thing you ask an adult about, lest you appear colossally stupid. And I was not in the habit of asking my parents anything. They were probably more alien to me than the Ricardos of I Love Lucy. <laughs> you know, it's funny because around that age, I realized I didn't live in Toronto. Um, I actually lived in Thornhill. I must have been about I eight or nine when I like 
personally put together that my grandfather on my mom's side was my step-grandfather something they hid from me because of like shame of my mom's biological father leaving the family oh (laughs) something like that you know that kind of thing but like i don't know not to like cast aspersions on rosie demandos how old were you when you found out your grandparents were fash (laughs) (laughs) uh but look okay my obviously my you don't have to answer the question six (laughs) were you his lawyer (laughs) i don't have to answer that either grandfather's father in the army i knew it wasn't the fucking Canadian army okay maybe i did maybe i did maybe a little yeah you probably assumed I wonder if there'll be a Demano personal essay at some point that is like when she finds out that she's not really Italian. She she gets like a 23andMe test and it's like she's like three quarters Irish. She's like mostly Welsh. (laughs) There's a King of the Hill episode where Hank Hill uh, finds out he isn't born in Texas and I feel like it would follow a very similar plot and very similar anxieties. (laughs) (laughs) Here she's uh, remembering, she's like learning that she's not American. When I was forced to accept this reality, it was with a sense of loss. <laughs> Here I had been trying to visualize myself growing up and fitting in this bustling American lifestyle, this energetic and self-confident and purposeful country. But I was stuck with dreary old young Canada, second rate by ancestry, third rate by an accident of birth. So this is... Um, the the lament of the canadian nationalist you know for for a long time there's this whole thread of discourse that is like oh like canada has to be different than the united states and uh we don't have a sense of identity or of our own and this is these are the arguments that um that uh bolster like uh, the canadian cultural industry you know largely subsidized in many ways right by the government and not that i don't agree that we should be doing that it's just um this kind of discourse of like, oh, like Canada and has, you know, has to assert itself as a culture is um, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I do think like it's, it's something she struggles with through the rest of this, this piece as well. Right. Like um, she's arguing for uh, an essential Canadianness through the piece. I would maybe argue that the idea of Canadianness is like kind of, kind of meaningless like there is no like definitive anything you can put in that it's literally that we're not american yeah like that is our founding uh ideology and and rosie demano just discovered it in her essay (laughs) (laughs) you just learned what can it being canadian is (laughs) yeah i mean she was six years old yeah no i was no you know young young rosie i I could see i could she probably wrote a great essay like what does it mean to be Canadian for her like grade one class? <laughs> so I'm going to jump ahead to this on page three here. Well, I don't know if you guys are following along. It's page yeah, three, yeah. line 17. Uh, page three, line 17. Okay, so back to the street. There were many Italians on that street, some relatives, some merely paisans. Marino, you like that? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh. Are you going to tell us what that means? Like, Countrymen or something like that? Fellow townsmen. Shout out to a great pizza place in Etobicoke called Il Paisano. Yeah. Um, good pizza. That sounds like a good pizza place name. Now, I'm, getting, now I'm hungry. All right. Sorry. Thanks so Sorry, much, Eric. Eric. Thank you, Eric. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, okay. Some were merely paisans. Some with no ancestral connection, but part 
of the cultural fraternity that kept us separate from them. There were several Jewish families too. Hey, Jeremy, do you like that? Yeah. <laughs> and I remember feeling a kinship with them because they were also aliens. Later on in my teens, we would move to a predominantly Jewish neighborhood in Downsview. This resulted in one curious anomaly. My mother now speaks English with a Yiddish accent and is as likely to make a brisket for dinner as lasagna. That's actually nice. I like that. <laughs> That's sweet. Yeah, that that is heartwarming. It, and again, it reminds me of like my parents, like Italian friends growing up. That that's not cultural appropriation. No, it's it, that is like like legitimately like a cultural exchange. Yeah. Right. Uh, how about the Yiddish accent though? Well, do you think she's faking it? <laughs> I don't, yeah, I, I think this is more likely to be authentic than the Madonna adopting a British accent situation. <laughs> yeah, that's <a> good point. <laughs> I don't know. I I think the idea of like Rosie Demano's mom faking a Yiddish accent is very fun and we should at least consider the possibility that she's just doing it to fit in. She, okay, this could go, look, the Jewish-Italian comparison has been made before and this could go in a lot more problematic directions. Well, let's yeah. not take it there. <laughs> no. like, like, if they start talking about the war and how we were just like each other during the war. <laughs> right, right, yeah, exactly. And this is so far is, like, rel- is quite wholesome, so it's kind of yeah. nice. Um, all right. Well, here we go. Uh, I was mortified in those days by our Italianness. I begged my mother to shave her legs, to which she finally acquiesced, although she never did understand the fuss. I hated the tomatoes and tangle of vegetables in our backyard and longed for the banality of a grass carpet. That sucks. Okay, she's yeah. a fucking psycho. That sucks. <laughs> Like who doesn't want vegetables in their garden? Yeah, that's I love gardens. I love a backyard full of vegetables. Everybody loves that, don't they? Yeah, this like yeah idealization of freaking like milk at the dinner table and like bland chicken and vegetables and stuff like that. Like it is so weird to me because. It, like uh, no offense to like at least this version of Canadian cooking, but I would say like most. Italian cooking is better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but like, I don't know. I just think of, I had this teacher in grade 12, like a Canadian, like white Anglo Anglo-Saxon white Canadian teacher. And he was, would always be like, yeah, back in the forties and fifties, the only thing you could get was like roast and potatoes. And it was like this boring monoculture and multiculturalism, 100% improve the country. So like, yeah. this is just silly to me. <laughs> yeah. Well, again, it's like the cultural signifiers of, of white basically white canadianness is uh like what she's like hanging on to right as as a as a way to belong so this is like written from the 60s point of view as well right mm-hmm. exactly uh, i really yeah. want to illustrate the point that it is incredibly strange for a child to demand that their mother shaves their legs um, <laughs> and it is something that i would not ever do <laughs> yeah like why well and it's not yeah well i think maybe it was as she got older like when she was a teen no no she's six years old as she's saying that um <laughs> i just i think i mean mind your business rosie <laughs> in late spring my father a farmer and shepherd before emigrating would dump a load of manure on the front lawn because this is the world's best fertilizer on those occasions returning from school I would walk right past my house, lest any classmates realize that I lived in such a monsters-like place. 
I guess we're ref- reference to what was that show with the monsters? Was it called? Yeah, the, the monsters. monsters. Yeah, are yeah, they yeah. are they Italian? <laughs> <laughs> More or less. I mean, <laughs> no, like it, it's this is this is a weird cultural signifier because it, like manure on the lawn is not specifically Italian. They like, went to a gardening store and bought like a bag of manure. <laughs> like, I have to say, even among. <laughs> quirky Italian Canadian stories. These, this pair does sound like quite a time. <laughs> this, this would kind of suck having a yeah. pile of manure on your front yard, I suppose. But you know, you need to have that garden nicely fertilized. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You, you, gonna, you want those tomatoes to be big and juicy. So my father, and I respect him for this and only in retrospect, Never attempted to ingratiate. I I respect him for this and only this. (laughs) (laughs) He never attempted to ingratiate himself with the Inglese by being less Italian or by altering the rhythms of his life. Although he was impeccably hospitable and generous. He hunted not for sport, but for food. And I can see him now skinning jackrabbits over the cellar sink. In the fall, he would slaughter a pig. At Easter, a lamb. This sounds great. Yeah, that's badass. Frankly. Yeah, this is badass. This is good. I mean, you're eating really well in the Demano household. Yeah, I like I like the idea of a teenage Rosie at this point. Anytime her dad does anything, she's like, "Fuck you, dad! Like, <laughs> why are you embarrassing me?" He's like, "I'm literally trying not to starve to death. Can you please, <laughs> you please leave me alone." My parents made sausages and strung them to dry inside a makeshift smokehouse. Oh, again, awesome. This is like uh, what yeah. every like, that, hipster wants. Yeah, that's I can relate great. to that. I wish yeah. my parents still had their gear for making sausage. Prosciutto would be salted and hung for a year in the wine cellar. My mother would spend weeks slicing fresh tomatoes and bottling them for sauce, sterilizing the bottles in a steel drum of boiling water in the backyard, stoking the fire underneath. She'd pickle cucumbers and artichokes, cauliflower, and olives. This is, well, then this is all sounds amazing. And Rosie yeah. knows, knows this too. I loved all these foods, so common now in Italian restaurants and grocery stores, but I was ashamed of them then. I would throw away my lunch at school and starve rather than expose these peculiar items to my Inglese friends. I pined for peanut butter sandwiches. Now, we just, again, we just learned a lot about her father, right? What her father's pastimes were, how he liked to prepare food, all this delicious stuff. Guess what we never found out about her father, and we never do? What did he do for a living? What was his job? Like, uh, we don't know. We never hear. We never hear. It's so odd that in a family memoir essay... We don't even know what her her father does for a living. This is like, <laughs> well, there could there could be good reasons for that. It was in waste management. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I like that she mentions what he used to do. Yeah, and that she doesn't touch on the fact that what he probably does now is like less lucrative, more demeaning, and not in line with what he like was raised to do. And it's like directly related to like class and capitalism and like, but man. Yeah, like why did they move to Downsview? Yeah, well, they're gonna. What what happened in her parents' career? <laughs> well, I I would assume that her mom didn't have a career in the sixties, just because that generation, yeah. yeah, didn't necessarily. I would assume that too. Yeah, no, I just, yeah. I just thought that was telling that we find out about her, so much about her father, and we never do. I know have to what say, he does for a living. 
I'm not sure how common this is, but maybe the, like my grandparents on my father's side, I think both had to work. My nonna did work at like the double, double bubble gum company, like just filling bins, that kind of stuff, factory work. So it's possible. Yeah. I mean, he probably had a, like a nice unionized factory job, or maybe he Mm -hmm. like co-owned a like small construction business or something like that. But we, we, we're going to find out later where they end up. But again, we don't know how they really got there uh, economically speaking. So let me just skip a little bit here uh, in, okay, let's we'll go. Yeah. Okay. So in autumn, after weeks of consultation and innumerable taste testing expeditions, the crates of grapes would be delivered to the house. Hundreds of them stacked on the lawn, California grapes for homemade wine. Families would help each other out in, in the complicated winemaking process, churning and pressing and sifting and decanting. It was, I suppose, a different version of the barn building efforts in other cultures a community event. In, invariably, I would step on a nail. <laughs> and, Rosie. <laughs> you know what? She's also, I mean, I guess this is part of the point of her, uh, you know, analysis and retrospect, right? Is that she's mm-hmm. actually saying that she's in a very cool neighborhood. I mean, yeah. everybody's coming over to like make wine together. This is rad. Mm-hmm. This is really good. Um, Getting the good grapes from California. That's, that's pretty impressive. Like, it is like, I do think that that one sentence where she says, you know, invariably I would step on a nail is sort of, I don't know. It's like her signifying that despite, you know, her actually thinking that this is a good idea, she was out of place. I don't think she actually kept puncturing her foot on the same nail every time this happened. I think she's like just trying to illustrate that she never felt completely at home with it. Like I, I don't know if I'm, yeah. I'm interpreting that incorrectly. Yeah. Well, let's okay. Let's let's read this part here, and then we're gonna have I think learn a little more. Education was not highly valued in our family, which possibly made us, our subgroup of Italian immigrants, different from other ethnic groups washing ashore in Canada. Education was feared by these Italians, a fear nurtured and encouraged by the Catholic Church. Education would take children away from their parents. The priest said, would make them question authority, would draw them into the outside world which was a forbidden place. So yeah, this is something that I am aware of too. It's something I have experienced uh, in my family too, which is like, uh, not like a, an antipathy to higher education uh, that was partly cultural, you know, uh, like maybe being Catholic or I don't know was part of it. I don't, I don't know if that was really part of it, but um, what is part of it is class because these are people who didn't go to school and they mm-hmm. immig- immigrated here and they don't have, Maybe they don't have a tradition, but they also don't have a history of getting higher education and working in the professions. Mm-hmm. So I never did, I never encountered this kind of distrust uh, on education from my parents downward. There was definitely the big like, oh, we've worked hard. My parents struggled. Are your grandparents struggled? Get you into university from them. But from their parents, uh, like my grandparents, uneducated on my grandma's on my mom's side, my maternal grandmother. Got really good grades up until grade eight and then had to be pulled to work on the fields. And that was it. And I don't think it was necessarily like, we don't want to keep you in school. I, I think it was primarily no other choice. But I'm, the, this probably is maybe just like a way to like explain or cope with that reality, the economic reality of it. Yeah. I mean, again, we have a cult- culturalist, a culturalist explanation 
Yes. For what, for what is a, a, a class, like a result of mm-hmm. like cla- a certain class experience, right? Exactly. Okay, let's, uh, this is a long essay, so I'm going to skip a whole yeah. bunch again. And I'll, we're just going to, we're going to like, I guess, and wrap it up sort of like where, where she and her parents end up. She points out that she had, she left the neighborhood. Okay. Yeah, we know she went on to like a very good career as a, actually in an intellectual profession. Right. Mm -hmm. So a very, very much um, left the neighborhood, at least the way she describes it um, as a place where people didn't get education, didn't work in the professions. She's talking about her parents on, this is like page five, uh, line 34. My parents never took a vacation. In 45 years, my father has yet to return to Italy for a visit, never mingled with another ethnic group, save for an Indian friend who was my dad's hunting companion, and the Jewish family in whose coin laundry my mother had once worked, never had any curiosity about politics or social issues, or even the most innocent of inglese pleasures, like, I guess, Wonder Bread? Also, (laughs) grilled cheese. Yeah. Also, like, you know, like, this guy sounds like kind of like a saint, quite frankly. <laughs> He's like, he had no <laughs> curiosity about politics or social issues. Like, what a nice life. To just, like, just a vi- what a vibe. Yeah. Do you is. think I would not absolutely, if I could instantly make this trade and my day was just like living in some like cabin in Northern Italy where I hunt boar and make soup and like, that's it? That's my whole life? Yeah, I do that. <laughs> you should do it for a year. Maybe. Maybe can I'm you here. can you Twitch stream from this cabin? Yeah, <laughs> there we go. <laughs> now we're talking. Yeah, uh, we're getting closer to the dream, I think. <laughs> so my father has never been to a movie, never gone to a hockey game, never attended a parent night at school. When I'm being generous, I convince myself that he was merely shy, that he felt ignorant in his English in this English culture. But I'm more inclined to believe that he lived completely within himself. And even his family was an intrusion. So her dad, she's just describing her dad having like a personality defect because like he doesn't like, uh, he doesn't know how to mix with middle-class English people. Yeah. It's a, well, it, it, it kind of reminds me of Andrew Cuomo uh, <laughs> talking about how that he, he wasn't, he isn't a sex pest. He's just like an Italian person. who's very, uh, you know, touchy and, um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's not like a one for one comparison to that, but, <laughs> but no, I know what you mean. Like, or like something that it's is, just his person. No, I mean, blaming his uh, personality defects on being. Italian yeah. 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 Getting at a hundred percent. I'll just. I just wanted to make sure that nobody thought you were insinuating that <laughs> dad was a sex fest. Oh, no. I, I mean. I was no, defending you. you. I'm, I'm the podcast lawyer today. <laughs> it's like Charlie and it's always sunny in Philadelphia. How he, <laughs> yeah, he's yeah. like the lawyer of the gang, even though he can't read. Yeah, that's me. <laughs> yeah. Perhaps I have inherited his discomfort, his diffidence, because I don't feel particularly connected to this country either. Although I have a genuine fondness for it. What, Rosie? Really? <laughs> too, too, too long an outsider, faking it, beseeching entry, relentlessly inglese in attitude and tastes, irredeemably Italian in my genes, but not hyphenated, never hyphenated, a clumsy hybrid, maybe. Mm. Mm. So she's trying to figure out 
who she is, how Canadian she is, how Italian she is. And this is where she ends up. Like she's making biological arguments. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is a real like question that, you know, lies we, in genetics. We should, we should fundraise to get Rosie DeMano a 23andMe test. Like if she, if she, like prove it, prove it you're Italian. Yeah. I mean, she finishes up this way. Uh, I don't wave flags and I don't find the notion of Canada Day contrived. Excuse me. <laughs> So sorry, I don't. So she says she does. I don't wave flags, and I find the notion of Canada Day contrived. Okay, it, that's, that's a, yeah. That's but great. no, no, hold, hold on. Oh. If if sweet, <laughs> it's, 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 it's contrived, very confusing. But... <laughs> this is kind of like <laughs> she, yeah. she, yeah, she really is. Like it, there's a lot of cognitive dissonance. But I have felt moments of intense patriotism. Like moments, uh, little moments, like spotting a maple leaf on a teenager's backpack in Europe. Grand moments, like when a Canadian wins a gold medal at the Olympics. Aching moments, like when I visit the Canadian War Cemetery in Casino, just down the mountain from my parents' village. As children, they survived the Battle of Monte Cassino. And historical moments, like covering the referendum in Montreal in 1995 and feeling a sudden swell of anxiety as if we were letting something very precious slip away though care- through carelessness and self-absorption but like all of those things like described in sequence like that make me feel like she is an intensely patriotic person like yes. i don't know like <laughs> i don't watch the olympics i i i don't i'm not interested i good luck to the athletes but like i'd be more willing to cheer for them if it was like Coming up next, Ned. Like, I don't need to know what country they're from. And so maybe she just thinks that the window for patriotism is different. Like, there's something more than this. That note about the referendum, which was like a desire for like autonomy and self-determination from a very culturally distinct group in Canada. And then her immediate following that up with it being like this anxiety over losing this homogene- homogeneity of Canada like <laughs> oh this, 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 nah, I don't like that my parents are Canadian citizens now uh, this is kind of funny actually my, my father he didn't get his, his citizenship papers for, for decades after he immigrated and was a permanent resident and from what I understand uh, allegedly <laughs> he, he got his uh, Canadian citizenship because at some point, he was going to be in legal troubles <laughs> regard, regarding his divorce from my mother. Oh, well. and, so, and so that's when he needed to get his citizenship <laughs> because he thought he, he may have been deported. <laughs> because, oh, you're saying that before that he... He had been in Canada a permanent resident. He didn't have papers. He didn't oh, have boy. his... That's right. He was without... Okay. He was without his papers. Yeah. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> but he, he got his citizenship then and was not deported. No, I mean, it was just a matter of, yeah. of just a little bit of paperwork. But it was interesting, the psychological resistance from him to just not ever get that citizenship. So I, it's interesting. Uh, it's kind of obviously a certain kind of privilege to being an immigrant of a certain type of a certain time that you're like taking your sweet time on. Getting getting your citizenship papers when you're like you might get deported if you don't have them. Anyway, Grace Grace Street is long ago and far away. They are living the good Canadian life, a suburban home, a cottage, 
two cars, a truck. That's three cars. Money. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> money in the bank. They take occasional trips, mostly church organized, and are finally seeing a little more of the country. They vote. And they try very hard to pretend that we are not a fractured, dysfunctional family. <laughs> real, real talk. <laughs> well, you know, when your dad has a garden and your mom has hairy legs, I mean, it's hard not to, <laughs> like, the neighbors know that you're a fractured, dysfunctional family. But, but it's interesting that she's taking, like, her own personal, uh, you know, familial issues and sort of transposing that onto the larger, like, Italian-Canadian experience. What she just described is known as upward mobility. <laughs> There's a very, like, obvious concept to describe what happened to, uh, you know, the immigrants of that generation as they made money, uh, you know, collected wealth, like bought r- real estate. This is, and then they retired because they didn't have to work anymore. And so this is what she just described. <laughs> but for her, it's all a cultural choice. Like, oh, now they just decided that they like a truck. They like trucks now. Who thought of that? <laughs> what? Because they can buy a truck now. <laughs> this is so much fun. I'm so glad that you brought this piece because it is very, very funny. Um, and it, it's like that exact thing. Um, there's a paragraph that I think that we skipped over, um, where she's like, I'm constantly astonished by third generation Italians who are like more proud of their ancestral homeland than, you know, the, the country of their birth. And like, yeah, they, she talks about how they act too Italian. And it's like, it's like, oh you can, you God. have to, you know, be Italian, but like, don't be that Italian. What does she want then? Because Canada is apparently like contrived and sweet or whatever. So like, do do you blame us for like choosing the place that actually has some cultural zest for like our identity? Maybe a place that wasn't completely built on like just colonialism and shit, you know, like somewhere that actually was just like, like just propped up where people just like flourished. And like that, like has thousands and thousands of years of history and and, and trade-offs and cultural development that you, you, there's just more legitimacy to it, frankly. Uh, uh, I don't know. Well, she, uh, she calls it a betrayal. Like, <laughs> it's just like absolutely insane to me. Cause it's like, no, people are allowed to live the way that they want. Yeah. Well, I mean, like speaking of betrayals, uh, there is the final line in the story, which is they do not read English. They will not read this story. They have never read a word that I written. Well, Rosie, they can afford two cars and a truck and all that other stuff. So I guess they didn't have to, and you have to get over it. <laughs> <laughs> they can hire someone to read this for them and translate yeah. it. <laughs> like, maybe that's callous. My parents like making, my mom at least makes an effort to read my stuff or, or, or be invested in my life in a way that I maybe I'm, I can't relate to Rosie's lived experience. And maybe that's tough. But yeah. she's definitely at least guilty of taking her personal uh, gripes with her family and sort of like casting them on the entire uh, Italian Canadian <laughs> community. As that's yeah, for uh, yeah. The point I was going to make was just you know uh, agreeing with you even further. The fact that like the tiniest bit of class analysis like really solves a lot of mysteries for Rosie, but <laughs> she never really gets there. 
throughout the piece, which is kind of like sad because I feel like we have more insight into why her life was the way it was than she does, which is like a legitimately sad thing. It's it was the 90s is the end of history. You know, it's (laughs) talking about talking about class made you sound like a outdated Marxist. Um, It was it would really delegitimate you in the public sphere. in A lot of ways. Is that true? Yeah. That's yeah. so that's so frustrating because like I did not Yeah, it was the nineties. It was the neoliberal golden age. I, I suppose that does make sense. And it's frustrating because I really did not develop class consciousness class consciousness until I was well into university. You mean <laughs> when you weren't uh between the ages of one to ten in the nineties? <laughs> no, no. Okay, yeah, okay, fine. Fair enough. <laughs> but like no, they're like just like the hangover effect of that and then coming up in, in university or just coming up in high school and like you know having all the lib teachers gather us in the auditorium when obama got elected and stuff like that just set the tone set the tone for marino to be a centrist boring lib up until his early 20s mid-20s she wrote that she wrote this it says 1997 uh so she was well into her 30s you know at this point but it's it is the 90s so that's Mm a time again where you're not going to be allowed to talk about you're, tra- you're trained out of seeing anything as an expression of, of a class experience, you know? Mm-hmm. And everybody was high off the fumes of their acid wash jeans, as I, <laughs> I understand was a thing back then. So this was a fun column to read. I, I will say, like, completely different than the stuff that we usually take on, which is always horrendous, but, like, usually not this much fun. This was well written, yeah. though. Like, like Rosie, like knows how to write. Yeah, she does really stylistically. It is she is leaps yeah. and bounds ahead of most of what we read on this podcast. <laughs> Which is probably why the star keeps her around, even though, even though she has a consistent track record of sucking. <laughs> <laughs> if you just pay attention to the words and not what the words mean, it's actually it's quite yeah. enjoyable, <laughs> right? But anyways. Uh wow, that was <laughs> that was a an interesting piece, I would say, from Rosie. You know, normally you read her writing about how like trans women aren't real women or uh about these damn hippies camping out at Trinity Bellwoods Park. But it's nice to get a sense of like who she is like mm-hmm. In a deeper sense, you know, we don't often get like pieces like this that are uh, personal essays about like like the real deep inner workings that really allow you to like understand the psychology of these guys beyond their like crappy takes in big newspapers. Yeah, to me, it's like representative of like a certain like white ethnic liberalism, right? Mm-hmm. But that certainly of this era trained into cultural understandings of the world and uh trained out of a class understanding of the world so that does i think shed light on like what she's what she writes about now like you mentioned that tent city piece that was like so roundly criticized um, in the summer and like rightfully so she goes around like on a tour of this tent city and it's all just all she's seen is people's like personality quirks it's like oh this person's a drug addict that must be why they're here and this person over here they're uh, they're they're crazy so that's why they're that's why they're here clearly and that's her whole Think there's like not even an aside anywhere about what housing prices are. <laughs> you know, it's it's amazing. My parents made wine. That's why. I'm, <laughs> that's why I'm sad. <laughs> you know what? Um, the end of that column, the Ten City column, is more galling now that I've read this and her understanding of her own history. Where, 
like at the end of her guerrilla journalism in the encampment, uh, she she mentions that, you know, she had enough after a single night. She walked home to her big brass bed and fell asleep. And I thought that was offensive already. But like now, you know, under, like getting a sense of her understanding of class is more aggravating. Why you got to do that, Rosie? You got to <laughs> brag about your bed? Yes. I say it's about time someone holds uh, people in encampments to account. Yeah, you know, flick the comfortable. Fuck. That's so sad. Um, We typically do like a, a news roundup. Uh, Jeremy, you haven't been on Twitter, so you have no idea what's going on in the world anymore. <laughs> um, but <laughs> Aaron... Yeah. I st- I've uh, also stopped reading. Yeah, well, it's the only way only way people can read is through their social networks. So I have no idea what yeah. you've been doing. Up, down, not left, left right. Jeremy, Jeremy's looking out his window all day, watching the clouds float, block, float by. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's very serene. Every cloud looks like a cell phone with tweets on it. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, I mean... The obvious thing that we should probably talk about is the Rittenhouse verdict that happened today. Who's that? Um, oh, my God. Um, <sighs> for those who don't know, the folks at home that don't know, Kyle Rittenhouse was uh, that asshole teenager uh, in Wisconsin who shot and killed two pro- protesters and dismembered another. Uh, anyways, he was. Uh, Wait, he dismembered one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They lost their arm. Oh, okay. I thought you meant he dismembered one of the protesters. He oh, yeah, like no. after the like fact, cut off his body. After. No, no, no. He shot like shot Luca Eh, He was found not guilty on all counts today <clears throat> because the system works as yeah. intended. Yeah, I, I mean, legitimately, like that's what the system does. It's, I mean, it protected a murderer who was protecting property. Um, as is his right. It's really, really grim stuff. Yeah, it sucks. It kind of sets a precedent that says, like, yeah, you can you can kill protesters, leftist protesters. We, of course, remember that dude who shot, like, a chud. And I'm not defending that in any stretch of the imaginations, but they literally sent an FBI task force to summarily, summarily execute him, whereas this fucking Rittenhouse kid, like, walks. So, I mean, like... That's just the tenor of of the country. Yeah, I just want to know more about this judge. Like he's he, uh, from my understanding, I wasn't on Twitter, so obviously I'm not getting the full picture. Um, is that he was very biased towards the defense, um, and is generally in other cases more biased towards the defense. Uh, Washington Post had a pretty good piece about that. His sort of judicial record. Um, and how it may inform his may have informed his conduct during the uh, Rittenhouse trial. Um, I hope someone digs up some dirt on him. We can only hope. Uh, the other thing that I think we should probably talk about is um, yeah the the RCMP moving into uh, like unceded lands to help ensure that CGL is built. Um, during a time where they are they're actually quite needed desperately um in other parts of BC after you know enormous floods everywhere yeah literally defending like trying to like you know trying to defend land for a pipeline 
while a country experiences a climate emergency, brandishing AR-15s in front of, like, Wet'suwet'en protesters tossing marshmallows. Well, and that province uh, is uh, having an emergency of its own that their public safety minister, uh, uh, I forget his name, Mike Farnworth, said is clearly the result of uh, climate crisis. Mm -hmm. The the you know in insane floods where like the average rainfall uh, for a month the month dropped in a day cut off Vancouver from like the rest of the country uh, Abbotsford is like underwater and some other towns and you have this and you have this rhetoric about how wow this means we have to do something about climate change meanwhile you're sending cops in to force a pipeline through uh unseated indigenous territory um that uh if that pipeline leaks will be even worse for the environment than like drilling oil man um, i am so tired of hearing like i'm just looking at the cbc front page right now and they're talking they're calling them historic floods and i kind of like don't like that kind of language like I, this is different but i was watching a youtube video Last night, and the dude was also like, "Oh, once in a century, like once don't in a make it seem." It just no, happens it's not, every every three weeks. Ha- ex- yeah, once in a lifetime, and then like every year, the province is is lighting on fire. It's just like, dude, come on. Yeah. We all know at this point, like, stop being so credulous. All right. Well, anyways, uh, we're gonna wrap up now with uh, my favorite part of the show: uh, plugs and wrecks. Uh, where we plug uh, anything we've been working on or produced, and we re- or we recommend um, something someone else has done as a little palate cleanser for what we just read. Um, so uh, I think our guest should go first. Aaron, do you got anything to plug or recommend? Well, I'll be damned if I'm not plugging my my own work here. Um, so I, uh, I think it was last week, uh, recently, I, uh, The Breach, the, uh, the leftist outlet out of Montreal, published a long essay, a very deep dive into Leonard Cohen that, that I wrote. It's, uh, it's called Leonard Cohen, Cold War Troubadour. And it essentially uh, understands Leonard Cohen's, his poetry and his, his music through the lens of the, the, the politics of his time. And he, so I, I kind of try to fit his career arc into that long arc of Cold War liberalism. And I had a great time re- uh, writing that. I got to read all this stuff uh, about Leonard Cohen. Got to listen to all the old, uh, all the old um, CDs. It was just great. I don't have actually CDs. I was listening to it on Spotify. I'm not that old, but uh, it was uh, really fun. So if you're a Leonard Cohen fan and you're also like into politics, left politics like basically this might be the only thing ever written well, yeah, about him you, in this through this lens so that that piece is for you i don't know if you got i've noticed a big generational difference in who likes leonard and so i'm uh, a little bit older than the other folks on the stream so and also being a being a poet and like a poetry student he was a figure that i, I gravitated to but i don't know do you folks like leonard cohen's like work whatever like his music or I I I like Leonard Cohen. I like Bob Dylan more. <laughs> um, it's a zero sum game. But I but I yeah, you're either Bob Dylan or you're not, and he's not. Uh 
No, but uh, he's great. Yeah, and I think maybe growing up Jewish, there was also like an element of like being introduced to Leonard Cohen. Where if I was in like a normal uh, household, um, I may not necessarily have been. Um, you know, growing up in the nineties. Um, but yeah, no, I mean, he's great. He's a great poet. Uh, his last album was crazy good. Um, uh, you want darker? Yeah. Yeah. Like that was his, like, like him and David Bowie both did like death albums. And, uh, yeah. you know, you can really tell he's, this is a guy who knows he's going to die. Um, could have called it ready to die. Sorry, <laughs> you could have called it. A, I'm dying, folks. Um, a little on the nose, though. Uh, yeah, no, but I do like Leonard Cohen. I also uh, do recommend uh, Aaron's uh, cultural uh, criticism that you can find in the Breach, in Jacobin, and uh, the Sprawl. Uh, you wrote that piece on Fubar for them. And yeah, so, it's very is, fun. is this just an excuse for you to like? binge watch shows and like listen to music why do you think i chose this career <laughs> yeah not it's not for the money let me just tell you that <laughs> well that that trailer park boys piece you wrote in jackman did you like binge watch trailer park boys before that oh, damn right that was a really good call all like how many seasons are there the i i watched the uh, original seven seasons there are many more seasons afterwards produced for Netflix. Oh, that I, right. I just I just skimmed a few of those. That wasn't the focus of my analysis. Right, like Netflix revived Trailer Park Boys, right? That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, how yeah. many years was I, I, it off for? It's still. Uh, well, I think it just. Ju- it's been. I think the last Netflix season premiered, and if I'm remembering correctly, 2019. Right. And and Trailer Park Boys is still producing episodes on their own website. It's called SwearNet, and so you they, they put out an ep, they put out a season uh, of the show. I don't know, maybe eight or ten episodes like earlier this year. Actually, it's the same. <laughs> it's not the same. And I get into that in my article. I try to take account of their of their career trajectory in, in the, the, 20, the twenty years. Yeah, Marino, did you did you read anything or watch anything good? Did I um, watch or read anything good? Yeah. Um, uh, I'm about halfway through a little piece that uh, came out yesterday that Jesse Brown has been very keen on. It is from our, our friends over at the CBC, and you'll never guess what the subject is. Oh, is it that we investigation? It is, yeah. About how they sent like multiple donors the picture of like the same schoolhouse, allegedly. Can't sue us. Um, I'm about halfway through, but it's pretty damn good. And it's just man, like, if the we charity wants to sue us, I I would. Mark Burry that. loves yeah, our you, show. You so. heard it here first. Yeah, we'll take the. Uh, yeah, Mark Burry should come on the podcast to answer for his. Crime. <laughs> we, we like to hate on. We like to hate on the CBC, and obviously the CBC pitchbot. Uh, uh, frankly, never misses, and their yeah. editor, and they still, they still got and it. Yeah, and their general edit, CBC's general editorial direction does sometimes leave a lot to be desired but there's a lot of good people there that we some we know personally doing a lot of good work and this looks like a it's a pretty solid piece so check it out we charity i can neither confirm nor deny knowing people who work at how can you really know somebody right (laughs) like Like, i I know what you're getting at um (laughs) jeremy uh did you read or, or watch anything good this week or write something uh 
Well, I will uh, plug my uh, newsletter, as always, uh, The Orchard on Substack. I just dropped a piece as we came in to record about the uh, situation on the uh, Belarus-Poland uh, border, um, which we've heard is all uh, of the Belarus's fault for flying in these these migrants from the Middle East at the behest of Vladimir Putin and people seem to be ignoring the fact that Poland's like no more like migrants know it right their role in that so I wrote about that uh, which you should check out um, and uh, uh, sign up for if you haven't Um, I also have two podcast recommendations Uh, the first being our beautiful boy uh, Alex from House of Decline who wrote our show's theme music uh, was on Kino Lefter. I just saw it in my feed before I got on. I uh, haven't listened yet, but you get Evan McDonald and Alex from House of Decline in a room. And I mean, how can that not be great? Um, and they're talking about the Mayor Pete documentary. So I'm looking forward to listening to that. And then also, uh, speaking of friends of the show, uh, uh, Bronwyn Tucker was on The Green Majority with Stefan Hostetter. Uh, last week, uh, and I, you know, you love to see friends making friends with each other. So that's it for me. Awesome. Well, I guess I'll I'll leave the show off with one final recommendation, and this is a, an older article, but uh, I met the person who wrote it. It is a press progress piece uh, titled "Toronto Sun Retracts Joe Warmington Column on Gang Culture." That quoted fake Drake <laughs> lyrics, and it's one of our favorite pieces ever. We uh, we covered it on the show one time with uh, with Stephen Maguziak from Press Progress, um, and our friend Alex, who who Jeremy just mentioned, actually put the fake lyrics to music, and I think that's the way we're gonna fade out. This yeah, show. we're gonna close the show with that. It's so good. Yeah. So, Aaron, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for giving us a piece that was actually enjoyable to read. Um, it was a nice uh, <laughs> respite from our, our usual, you know, work in the trenches. Um, please come back sometime soon. Oh, anytime. Thank you for having me. It was a lot of fun. Awesome. Bye. 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 Oh, you should maybe add something telling people to give us money uh, before the warm. I, I forgot to do that. Okay. Beginning. Yeah, and uh, give us money on Patreon. Um, okay, bye. And watch you us on snake. Twitch, twitch.tv. Everything's Big Shiny Takes. Go. Yeah. Bye. Big Shiny Takes everything. We can't afford to let someone else get killed. If they scared, we kill you by ourselves If I'm scared, bodyguard Chubbs will shoot you by himself Only need one person to shoot you, you only live once Shiny takes the only anti-free speech podcast. Big shiny takes reading garbage for your brain. 
It's being shiny takes with Jeremy, Eric, and Marino. Being shiny takes are sure to entertain. Are sure to entertain.